And a very good morning to listeners. This is Nalita Chalaya presenting you Solidarity Breakfast, taking you through to 9 a.m. this morning. And what a amazing couple of days we've had. Earthquakes in um, Japan again. And plenty of nuclear plants. What a smart idea that has been. Um, and it's, of course, um, another blight on the climate skeptics' um, view, I guess. But even more exciting, probably very close to home, is the fall in um, real estate value. Did you hear that one about property values by the beaches, the expensive property values by the beach? Maybe going down. The prices will go down because of climate change. And listeners, today that's going to be our focus, climate change. We have um, two interviews, um, both about climate change. One is um, Ian Angus, who's an eco-socialist from um, Canada. The other one is Ramesh Agarwal, who's from India. And we shall see what they have to say. So let's start with Ian Angus, who is very well known. And we have interviewed him in the past, and he's just released a book as well. So here we go. Welcome to 3CR, Ian. Um, it's, it's great to catch up with you. I interviewed you maybe a year and a half ago about the climate change, and this is, I guess, timely given the Paris talks are over and the dust is settled. Um, shall we start about what your opinion is about the fallout from the Paris conference, perhaps? Sure, that would be that would be fine. First of all, thank you for uh, having me on the show. I'm uh, very pleased, and I'm really looking forward to coming back to Australia in a, in a few weeks. Um, the Paris talks were uh, pretty much what I expected them to be. That is basically a uh, pretty substantial show uh, without really very much content. And the uh, in, in some sense, what you got, you know, you know the old story about the. Uh, What's amazing about a dog that walks on hind legs is not that he does it well, but that he does it at all. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and similarly, people seem to get excited about the Paris conference simply because there was an agreement. Um, but the agreement wasn't very good. In fact, the agreement is just plain awful. And it does have all the appropriate words in it. You know, it says things like we should reduce um, – uh, average temperature by 2 degrees and 1.5 degrees if possible. And it, it says things like that, but it actually contains no concrete measures whatsoever, no method of actually achieving that. It doesn't even mention fossil fuels, which is the key to all of this. They have to be reduced. Um, and it all depends on the uh, parties to the agreement uh, voluntarily setting their own targets and their own procedures, which um, – you know, we have had voluntary targets set for 20 years and nothing ever happens. Mm. And similarly here, what we have is, I mean, it's like an agreement to agree to agree one day. That's right. Um, <laughs> I mean, somebody, one of the international groups that studies these things took, look, took a look at the proposals that have been made because most of the company, countries have, in fact, now put in, here's our plan for what we're going to do. And when you look at that, it turns out that there are only two countries in the whole world that have a plan that could actually achieve the goals that need to be achieved within their country, and those are Cuba and Tuvalu. Wow. Um, you know, that's, those are important countries, but they are very small. Exactly. Um, and when you look at, you know, the United States or China or Australia or Canada, um, what you have is uh, – 
at best uh, what they like to call aspirational goals. That means they have no idea how they're going to achieve them. Hmm. and actually have no intention of achieving them. And here in Canada, we have the thing of uh, our prime minister, who, our, our new prime minister, who uh, you know, changed the politics because our previous prime minister was against doing anything on climate change. Our new prime minister is in favor of talking about doing something about <laughs> climate change. Um, <laughs> but after he goes to Paris and makes all these heroic speeches and so on, he comes back here and one of the first things he's fight, he's trying to get through in the political arena here is a new pipeline to carry tar sands oil to oh, the east coast yes i was going to ask you about that yes and and he says things like well this will pay for reducing um climate change or reducing emissions. And somebody said it's kind of like, uh, you know, going on, well, I, I don't know if you know the, the food that we have here in Canada called poutine, which is basically very high fat, very sweet, very high calorie food. And he said, and it's sort of like having an all poutine weight loss diet. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, in essence, they're proposing to do things that will raise uh, emissions substantially, and they have no proposal for, do, for actually reducing them. So the Paris Agreement, as I say, it's, it is inter the interesting part of it is that the world's politicians now feel they can no longer uh, completely refuse to act, as mm. they did, say, in, in Copenhagen. Um, they have to look as though they're doing something, mm. but they're still not doing anything. Yeah, that's, that's a sad part, and that's the politics of the situation, isn't it? That's all. This is a slash-and-burn policy. He's continuing unabated. That's it's what's significant about the Paris talk. It has done nothing to stop this, um, you know, uh, burning the earth type policy that is being imp implemented by just about every country in the world. And I think that the smaller countries are very worried because they know they're going to drown. They're very conscious, by like Tuvalu, for example, as you mentioned. Yes, I think that, um, I mean, it is, it is getting very hard now to believe that we will avoid... Um, radical ocean uh, level increases in our in this century um, even if um, technology you know somebody invents the magic technology and that's re really what the politicians and the capitalist corporations sort of depend on is a kind of mystical belief that that some somebody that there'll be magic somebody will come up with a technology that will solve all the problems and they won't have to actually change the way they do anything so even if somebody comes up with this magic technology to take carbon dioxide out of the air um, the heat is going to be such that the, the, the ice caps are likely to melt and Antarctica is likely to melt. Mm. And uh, barring very rapid action, um, many of the small countries and the island countries um, are going to face really intensely serious problems, uh, certainly within a generation. Mm. One of the other things that brings to mind for me is that at the moment they are um, dealing with refugees from the wars that they have created, the capitalist, I mean, right. um, this climate change uh, issue is going to now throw up another massive refugee problem once it hits the deck because they are going to have to escape those islands. Where are the, where are the people going to go? It's not a big issue. It's, it's uh, you know, facing them for the future, I believe. But anyway, we, we wanted to talk about a book. Let's move on to that maybe um, and tell us what this is about. 
Okay, my, I, I've written another book. Yes. <laughs> which I'm, I'm very pleased with, um, and it will be, it's called Facing the Anthropocene, and the subtitle is uh, Fossil Capitalism and the Crisis of the Earth System. It will be published, uh, officially published this coming summer, my time summer, your winter, mm-hmm. uh, uh, by Monthly Review Press in uh, the United States. But uh, because I've, th- there's a socialist conference in Sydney in, uh, in May, I persuaded them to uh, pull out the stops, and we're going to introduce the book to the world at that conference. Fantastic. So, so that will be the first place anybody can see it. Um, the focus here, I mean, is the, the term Anthropocene, which is one of those words that, you know, probably five years ago nobody ever heard. Mm. And now it seems you just can't open a magazine without, read, without seeing it. You know, there's books and magazine articles and so on about the Anthropocene, with, usually without too much explanation of what it is. In a nutshell, take the climate change, climate change as one issue. The Anthropocene is a scientific concept that says what we are facing is not simply climate change, but a whole realm of uh, changes to the fundamentals of the way the Earth system works um, so that we are moving into a new uh, epoch of Earth history. Basically, the Anthropocene is the proposed name for this new epoch, which includes not only the problem of climate change, but, for example, the loss of biodiversity and the, the fact that we are now in the uh, sixth great extinction of life on Earth uh, going on as we, as we speak, the acidification of the oceans, um, the extraordinary increase in the amount of nitrogen that we are pumping into the uh, into nature, natural production of, of uh, nitrogen and now exceeds, uh, excuse me, uh, artificial production of nitrogen now exceeds natural production, and that's re- that's poisonous for the oceans. In essence, you get that's what results in these huge dead zones in oceans. And there's a whole series of these things that say that just as 12,000 years ago. The Ice Ages ended and the Holocene, that's the epoch we are in, started this period that's been quite calm, really great for humanity because it's a, the temperatures have been pretty steady on the whole. Uh, on the whole, the climate's been pretty easy. That, that that whole period of very calm and limited change has ended, and we are now moving into uh, a new period of intense uh, chaos in climate and other things in, about the way the world works. And there are significant questions, as, as quite a number of scientists have said. The Holocene is the only Holocene conditions are the only ones in which we know for sure uh, complex societies can exist. Basically, it was the Holocene that made agriculture possible. Um, and if those conditions go away, uh, human societies are going to face some really serious challenges. That's what my book's about. Mm. So it's it's a, it's a very difficult situation, isn't it? Politically, we have capitalism just marching on rather harshly. It's getting harsher by the day. And we have very little uh, opposition to it, although there have been mobilizations in Europe and some in the U.S. behind Saunders, and that's still sorting itself out. You have Coburn in, in, in the U.K., but nothing substantial to counter these measures from a political, political point of view because policies... And implementation of these policies are the key to this, to turning the situation around. Yes, you're right. And it, it's a difficult situation. I, I, I repeatedly go back to the uh, um, catchphrase or slogan that the Italian socialist Antonio Gramsci used, which he 
uh, which he, he referred to pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Mm. That is, from an from intellectual point of view, we realize the potential for cat, cat, catastrophic change is facing us. If not uh, our generation, then certainly our children or our grandchildren could face a world in which you know, 60, 70 percent of the globe could be uninhabitable by the end of this century. Um, that's, that's a real possibility that we... Uh, expect but the only choice we have in that situation is to is to fight because if we if we fight we might lose if we don't, don't fight, fight we're guaranteed to lose exactly so, so the so our choices here are basically to commit to fighting for change and to win what we can we may not be able to head off the rising oceans for example but it's quite possible that we can limit the amount of temperature increase or we can reduce the amount of uh, species that uh, go extinct in our lifetimes uh, there's many things like that that we can achieve and in fact fighting for those things is part of fighting for overall change occasionally I'll run into somebody who'll say well there's no point in fighting for those reforms the only thing we need is to change the entire society and well yes i agree in the in the uh, in general terms but you've got to say if you if our movement is incapable of stopping the fight for coal seam stopping uh, coal seam gas for example if we can't do that how can we imagine we change the whole society hmm. it's the smaller struggles and the intermediate ones through which we will build a movement hmm. absolutely right and i think uh, people are starting to realize it but there's not enough momentum so to speak, and the capitalist media is getting worse by the day. <laughs> you know, it's just horrible listening well, I, to them. <laughs> I, I, I come from a country where the media is just about as bad as Australia. Oh. Uh, I won't say completely as bad because I really have been shocked by the Murdoch papers when yes. I've been in Australia. But um, certainly we have a, a press that uh, can, can scarcely be called progressive. And uh, those are things that we have to break through by whatever means we have. Your radio show is one of those elements. You Absolutely. Know, Green Left Weekly is one of those things. Mm. Um, the demonstrations that we have, the breakthroughs that we do make into the press, uh, and as I say, fighting for whatever we can fight for. I mean, one of the interesting things I've found in the research on the book on, on uh, the Anthropocene is how many of the people who've played critical roles in the scientific theory of this are, in fact, Australians. Hmm. And uh, those scientists are potential allies. They are seeing a crisis that they, they're seeing the crisis from a completely different point of view than political people do. They come at it from having studied how the Earth system works and what's going on, and they're predicting crisis and calling for major change. And the opportunity for us here to ally with scientists and to, working towards what I call a new synthesis of, of uh, uh, socialist politics and Earth system science is uh, very, very important here, and we do have the opportunities to do that. And it, it is no accident that your uh, your government has decided to fire a lot of climate scientists. Yes, those people, you know, simply because they tell the truth, yes. they are a threat to the system. Yes. And telling the truth is a huge part of what we need to do. Yeah, they're, they're very good at shutting people up, aren't they? We'll take a short break and continue with the interview. Panoply, panorama. Panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, 
We'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. a community event or campaign you'd like to announce on radio? Maybe your group would like to take a tour of 3CR and find out how community radio works. Are you in a band and would like to record a demo? Or maybe there are people in your workplace or activist organisation who would like to undergo media skills training. 3CR is a resource for the community and offers community announcements, station tours, studio hire and media skills workshops at affordable prices. For more information, contact 3CR on 9419 8377 or go to our website www.3cr.org.au. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. I am Lalita Chalaya, taking you through to 9 o'clock. This is a, a pre-record with Ian Angus who is an eco-socialist and an author of many books on the climate issues. He will be coming to Sydney later this year, in May, to attend a conference. So let's continue with the interview. I just thought if you could update us about the struggles in Canada. I know the tar sands plan's been proposed by your Prime Minister Trudeau. Mm-hmm. What's happening yes. around that? Well, okay, the, the, the specific, the, the, there have been frequent fights about pipelines in Canada. As you know, uh, Canada has the largest reserves of uh, oil in the world next to Saudi Arabia, but they are tar sands, which means they are particularly dirty. They do produce particularly large amounts of emissions, and they're simply the process of mining them. You mine it. You don't pump it up the way you do with traditional oil. Um, is uh, extraordinary, destru- extraordinarily de- destructive, and there have been successful campaigns. So one of the things about where the where this is located is is in landlocked territory, and of course the oil companies uh, want to get that oil uh, to other international markets. To do that, they you know they're currently mostly shipping the oil by uh, by by rail. What they want is a pipeline to the sea, and. They were stopped. They've been stopped on at least two major projects to build pipelines to the Pacific uh, by m- substantial mobilization, primarily by the ing- indigenous people. Uh, the First Nations in Canada have done a heroic job of fighting uh, and preventing the uh, um, pipelines from going through their historic lands. So there's a, and then there was a proposal to send one, send it down to uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, that was the Keystone Pipeline, which you pr- might have heard about which the American uh, government has finally uh, said it's not going ahead with, or at least it's so far not going ahead with. So there's a the proposal for what's now called Energy East, which is the biggest one of all. It would be a 17 to $18 billion project to pipe oil from Alberta, um, something like 3,500 miles to the Atlantic Ocean. And although they say it's, you know, sort of build Canadian industry there, it'll be in Canadian refineries. In fact, uh, at the same time, they have big proposals for expanding the uh, uh, ports there so they can ship this oil overseas. 
and there's been large-scale campaigns against Energy East, uh, particularly in Quebec and, again, particularly among Indigenous people. Uh, and then there have been a lot of local campaigns. In the town I live in, for example, um, there's a really significant concerns because it's mostly a rural area. Most people get their water from wells, and a significant spill in this area could poison an awful lot of people. So the, uh, there's, there's a substantial campaign on, around that, although it, it as with all campaigns, it, it ebbs and flows. But uh, nevertheless, there is a strong campaign. One of the difficulties we have, unfortunately, is that at the, in mainstream politics, there's general, you know, there is almost no opposition. Not even the Green Party is opposing the pipeline. Uh, our, our Green Party is what you might call an eco-capitalist party. Mm. And uh, they view the pipeline as a method of building Canadian industry, right? makes little sense to me, mm. uh, at least not if you're going to call yourself a green. No. But we do, have, we do have those campaigns going on. I would not call them in any sense mass campaigns, except, as I say, uh, the, the First Nations peoples who have uh, been absolutely heroic in this. Uh, in many of the, uh, the areas where the pipelines go through and certainly the areas where the tar sands are, are in the historic lands of, of First Nations, and uh, they're watching... Uh, for example, in Alberta, uh, the, their rivers being poisoned, the wildlife being killed, all by these, uh, these massive tar sands mining projects. So how do you see the, the opposition to his, this proposal within this parliament? Because he's got a fair mix of people in there. And I'm, I'm not sure of all the politics of all the different multicultural uh, components to his cabinet. It's important to remember that, 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 that Justin Trudeau, our new prime minister, is he's from the Liberal Party, and the Liberal Party in Canada was in power when the Kyoto Accord went into effect. Mm. And when they were, in fact, they, they not only signed the Kyoto Accord, they actually upped the ante, and where the United States said they would reduce emissions by 5%, Canada said, no, it'll be 6%, we're going to be better than the Americans. Uh, and they did all that, and they promoted themselves as the ones who were going to help produce global warming, and then promptly did nothing. Mm. And in fact, Canada's emissions continued to rise under both liberal and conservative governments uh, for, well, forever, mm. but certainly since the early 90s. So um, I have... It's very unlikely that we will see significant action on... Um, climate change in Canada. There was a, there's a proposal. The federal government wants a uh, put a price on, on uh, carbon, but even there, they're not coming up with anything very specific. Their proposal is that each of our provinces, our provinces have a fair bit of power. Uh, Canada is a fairly decentralized country politically. Um, but each province uh, would have its own plan and figure out its own way of doing things, but they had a meeting and the provinces wouldn't even agree to that. Mm. So, um, and uh, again, uh, in theory, the federal government could impose it. In practice, they almost certainly will not. Last but not least, um, you, you want to say a few words about the conference you're coming to in Sydney. What is it and, and uh, what's exciting about it, perhaps? Well, the, the conference is uh, going to be the 13th to the 15th of May at uh, Sydney Uni, and it's called Socialism in the 21st Century. It's organized by Socialist Alliance and uh, Green Left Weekly, who have... Uh, this is my third time they've invited me to come to, the, to Australia to speak. I'm very pleased. And so I will be one of the speakers there. And the, the list of people should look it up on the, on the web just to see the program. It's quite astonishing. Uh, other participants uh, from overseas include uh, 
Michael Leibowitz, who's one of the finest um, contemporary theorists in Marxism, a really fine writer who's done an awful lot of studying of a lot of the questions he's asking is what happened to socialism in the 20th century? Why did the countries that were supposedly socialists go wrong? And he's done some really wonderful work on that, on talking about what we would need to do to, to build a uh, what he calls a solidarian society, one that actually is based on socialist principles in our century. Um, Marta Harnecker is speaking, and she is uh, she was part, she was involved in the in the Chilean movement around uh, the time of, of Allende, and has continued to be a key figure in the Latin American left. Again, she's another person who's got more books out than I can count, and uh, a wonderful uh, speaker and uh, insightful thinker about the strategy and tactics of building the left. And, I, I mean, I don't have a full program in front of me, but I was looking at it the other day, and it's just, there's just jam-packed of people from all around uh, South Asia and, uh, and, uh, and from Oceania. Um, I, it's a, uh, a very impressive conference. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing a lot of people there. Thank you very much, Ian. It's very kind of you to um, make yourself available to 3CR. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Ian Angus, eco-socialist from Canada and author of many books. And climate change is still a big feature in the world today. And if this goes on, we won't have a planet, never mind a world. Right, I've got a multitude of announcements. And I guess it's because, partly because May Day is around the corner. So on the 1st of May, as we expect I guess, given that they refuse to give us the public all the way on that day. A denial of workers' rights, I reckon. People are assembling. Oh, there's been a call to assemble at um, Trades Hall at 1 p.m. It's Sunday. So hopefully many of you are able to come, given it's actually a, a day off by by luck, really. So corner of Victoria and Russell Streets, um, opposite Trades Hall. And... Um, it will be a family day and, and apparently they've got things for children to do, rides and games and so on, starting at 11 a.m. So you can turn up with the family at 11 and the assembly for the march would be at 1 p.m. And there are so many things on, on May Day. You can just look it up um, on the web. But they're the main things that are coming up for May Day. And today there is a conference uh, in the Brunswick Town Hall corner of Dandelion and Sydney Road. It's a conference about Malaysia. I guess some of you would have um, watched the Four Corners program on the corruption in Malaysian political circles, circles. And this conference today is talking about reconciliation, trying to, I guess, um, somehow put balm on the racial divisions that have been put there deliberately for many decades since post Independence, and f- there are four speakers, no, three speakers, who've just come from, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, come from Malaysia, and they'll be talking about racial harmony, standing tall together against extremism, and discussions on obstacles to unity. So it should be an interesting day, and of course it's lunch. Uh, so if you want to come before uh, lunch, there'll be a session on racial harmony and. After lunch, it'll be the other two um, workshops or sessions, really. And tomorrow, we have a couple of um, events. There is um, Stories from Palestine, 
we need to show the world that Palestinians, Palestinian lives are just as worthy as anyone else in the world, that there is no difference, and that humanity and compassion is universal. 11 a.m., Federation Square, Corner Swanson and Flinders, Flinders Streets in the city. And she's a performer, apparently. There's a performer who is very talented and highly respected in Palestine, and she performed in Sydney recently. So it would be mighty interesting. I think it's a poetry session and a, and a stage performance. The other one is in the comedy festival, Zamina Zera Homicidal Pacific. Um, homicidal, very funny title, this one. So it's Homicidal Pacifist from the U.K., it, it says it's time to call the human race, but how is a long life believer, a lifelong believer, sorry, I'm getting dyslexic with my old age, a lifelong believer in nonviolence to choose by making a list, a culling list. Samina combines the weight of her political opinions with caustic dark humor. So it's part of the um, comedy festival. So those who want a, um, a different type of humor, I guess this will be a good one to go to. Now, the other one I really want to passionately promote is um, the occupation of houses in Bendigo Street in Collingwood. Now, Bendigo Street has been like a dead ghost street for the last 18 months since the East-West um, Tunnel was abandoned, so to speak. And there have been many properties there that have been empty. And probably some of you know, 50 homeless people and members of the homeless Persons Union are occupying some of those houses and they've been warned uh, to leave by a councillor, I think. Let me have a look. 20 properties out of a total of 150 were acquired by Clifton Hill uh, in Parkville and Collingwood and the Salvation Army was in partnership with this up to six months of all souls. I guess this was acquired by them six months ago. It is believed that those 20 have been filled. The demonstrators want the remaining houses to also be occupied and greater transparency of the process. And Andrew's government is very busy demolishing and privatizing public housing. These are more than 35, there are more than 35,000 Victorians on the public housing list growing at hundred per month and some of you would have noticed an increasing amount of homeless people sitting on the, sitting on the streets in Swanson Street, living on the bridge on uh, the banks of the Yarra and it's absolutely disgraceful, the fourth richest country in the world, having young homeless people sitting in the cold, winter's coming and this is what they do now Stephen Jolly, a uh, councillor for the um, Yarra Council, has said, you've got this prime real estate just sitting empty and is a total waste. He adds, they've just sat on these properties and is not good enough. Now that the tunnels have been scrapped, most of these are just going to be flogged off to the highest bidder. So for those people who've got time, or people should, I guess, you know, make the time to support these poor people who are being marginalized, who've been thrown on the streets and trying to do something positive, Bendigo Street in Collingwood. It's ongoing, and from what I hear, cops have been checking other sites, and they have actually been warned um, that they should leave. And this is while 80,000 houses are vacant in Victoria, 350,000 people on the public housing waiting list, 
and 25,000 homeless. So, come on, guys, let's go support these poor people. And I shall come back to more announcements later. Here we go. We have Ramesh Agarwal next. I interviewed him a few days ago. He is a... I guess, you know, one of the senior citizens of the world who's fighting for the, for the environment and had some successes in India. So let's listen to Ramesh Agarwal from India, who's attending a conference in New South Wales. This is an interview with Ramesh Agarwal, and he's the 2014 Goldman Prize winner for environmental accomplishments. Ramesh comes from India, and he has been a, an activist all his life. Environmental experts credit Agrawal with bringing national and international awareness to the problems disenfranchised communities in India face from the lack of accountability by industrial developers and a government all too willing to turn a blind eye. But thanks to the work of activists like Agrawal, that may be beginning to change. In late 2014, India's Supreme Court issued a ruling that declared all mining licenses issued out in 1993 to be legal. Agrawal commented, The Supreme Court verdict that cancelled all but a handful of coal mining licenses is certainly great news. It exposes the unholy nexus that exists between politicians, bureaucrats, and the extraction industries in India. However, It's important this reprieve will only be temporary. Today, Agarwal's work continues to give hope to other communities fighting unchecked industrial development throughout India. He is actually in Australia to, uh, as, an, as a guest of Lock the Gate movement, and he's actually having a public session in Wollongong. He was kind enough to agree to an interview with 3CR. Welcome to 3CR, Ramesh, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us. Ramesh, I just wondered if you could tell us why you are in Australia. Well, I am a campaigner activist, and I am uh, working in India in my communities. Uh, and they are suffering a lot from the coal mines and power plants, and uh, I have... Uh, a lot of experiences and uh, when i came to know about the coal mines here and the communities are also suffering here they don't want the coal mines that's why i am here to say and uh, i know also the mines in question that is olang valley and dasal valley coal mines are um, a major part of uh, is owned by the general company the indian company gspl and uh, my experience our experience with the general is not so good they are not complying with any law or rule and uh, they are violating all the environmental laws so they are uh, exploiting the tribal people uh, they are grabbing the lands and every kind of things to uh, implement their projects they can go to any extent i have suffered a lot about the, due to all this my activism so i am here to share my experiences so the communities here and the government here before making any decision can consider what this company is kind of and what is their conduct in india 
so they should think of it. That's why I'm here. Okay, I'm just wondering if you tell us about some of your experiences in India with this particular company. What have they actually done to the yeah. tribal people and the people who live in the villages? Well, um, uh, they need a lot of uh, land for their coal mines and power plants. So sometimes they acquire the land through the government and sometimes if uh, they can't acquire the land, they forcefully encroach the villagers' land, tribal's land, and anyhow may, may make them, force them to sell their land on company's conditions. And sometimes, uh, there are some examples, they have entered into some other villages. There is a lady widow, they constructed uh, a residential colony on, the, on, on her land, and when she approached to court, and the court ordered in her favor that their colony be demolished and the land be vacated and handed over to that lady. But till today, she is not able to get back her land. And sometimes there is a provision in India that tribal land can't be transferred to non-tribal. That is a major obstacle for these companies to have the tribal land for their projects. So what they do, they buy the land through their mock tribes who don't have such kind of money, that major money to buy the land, and they buy the land in those tribes. In this way, the actual tribes, the landowners, don't get the fair price, nor the other facilities like jobs or the resettlement or rehabilitations. This kind of things are going there. This is on records. They have been uh, purchasing this type of uh, land and legal proceedings is going against them. And the second thing, uh, um, they are uh, not caring a bit about the environmental laws in India. So uh, many criminal cases are going on. We have made such complaints with the Ministry of India and our complaints were found very genuine and uh, the government initiated legal action against them. Then their um, conduct of working is, if someone is opposing their land and exposing them, their illegalities, then they try to bribe first. If it doesn't work, they implicate them in false cases. I have been uh, implicated in two such cases, and in one case of defamation, I have been in jail for 73 days. And it was the only Supreme Court who ordered my bail, and then I came out of jail. Not only me, but other villagers or the activists also suffering this kind of false cases. Then um, they filed another case of uh, extortion against me, and uh, the police haven't any, any evidence. They have to admit in the High Court that they don't have any evidence against me in the case of extortion. So the court granted me bail. And uh, these two cases are still pending in the courts. But uh, And the uh, third one was that their hired guns uh, fired at me, and uh, I wounded badly. In fact, they came to kill me when I was uh, working in my office. 
बट आई हैड ए फोन इन मोबाइल फोन इन माई हैंड एंड वेन आई सॉ द गन आई थ्रो द माई मोबाइल टूअर्स देम एंड मिस्ड द टारगेट बट एनी हाउ आई सर्वाइव बट फॉर लास्ट फोर इयर्स आई कांट वर्क वेल एंड आई स्टील अंडर ट्रीटमेंट सो दिस काइंड ऑफ एक्टिविटीज दे आर डूइंग इन इन इंडिया एंड इन्वायरमेंटल नॉर्म्स इज नथिंग फ्रॉम दे दे स्टार्टेड कंस्ट्रक्शन ऑफ ए टू थाउजेंड फोर हंड्रेड मेगावाट पावर प्लांट इन छत्तीसगढ़ विदाउट हैविंग प्रियर परमिशन ऑफ गवर्नमेंट विच इज मैंडेटरी अंडर most interestingly they had a sufficient land for for the power plant they encroached the government land and were building um, they started construction on the government's land which itself was a coal block when we come to know about them we made the complaint to the ministry and they found our complaint very genuine and they they scrapped their project and uh, directed the state government to initiate criminal proceedings against the gspls not only this they started construction of coal washery without prior permission they started uh, uh, another power plant so there are so many violations they are not adhered to so these are all kinds of things which i would like to share with the communities here and with the minister mr robert also so they could make a proper decision if you have just tuned in we are in the middle of an interview with ramesh agarwal who is an environmental activist from india and if you are not a member yet please do join 3cr we are more than happy to receive membership applications so you go to 3cr.org.au and follow the prompts as a membership section in that page and of course you can always ring us on 9419837 so welcome to 3cr the community radio and now we shall continue with the interview with ramesh agarwal who is the winner of the annual Goldman Environmental Prize of 2014 it's also known as the Green Nobel Prize and mr agarwal the the mines you mentioned are russell vale and wongawili coal mines in near the wulongong area yeah. um i'm just wondering yeah they this company that you mentioned where's the company from which country uh, um, this is uh, from india they 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 are from india jindal steel and power limited 90% of wolongol uh, uh, shares uh, are um, are um, from jspl the parent company hmm. and we also have adani mines in queensland who've just given who's been given yeah, approval yeah yeah in in queensland which recently have got approval from the government as uh, i think two days before there yes. was an announcement yes. that they have approved the coal mines yes, so we've got yeah. a major fight against coal mines in this country at the moment because of the uh, the problems we face environmentally and yeah the, yeah, yeah the coal uh, everywhere the coal mines are being opposed by the local community or local communities because they have seen a lot earlier they, they didn't know the impacts of the coal mining they were promised a lot that they will have the colleges they will have the hospitals they will we have the roads and so and so on 
but uh, nothing was complied with. Now they know how harmful these mines are. They are um, they have lost their land. They are uh, suffering from lot of diseases. They don't have uh, water to drinking. They have lost their forests and many kinds of other things. So now they are not agreed for any coal mines much more in India and other countries also. Hmm. So your major uh, trip, the, trip the, the major uh, intent of your trip to Australia is to support the communities who are fighting against coal mine ventures, especially by this particular Indian company, yes? Yeah, my campaign is that, to, be, <clears throat> to aware the people about the impacts of the coal mining and the power plants also, and let them aware of their rights, what are their fundamental rights, and what are the environmental rights they are guaranteed by the Constitution. So they can know better which are the forum, uh, best uh, forum for remedies. And uh, they should uh, come together to fight against the against the mines. Yeah. This is our, our this is our campaign to make people aware. If they are informed enough, they have enough information and know their rights. They they will uh, understand well and will stand against the mines. In your opinion, what are the health impact for the people who live near these coal mines? First thing I think came to know about that uh, this is the underground coal mine. And a huge water catchment is is at risk there, so it may pollute the water. This is the biggest risk. Then there are certain other risk of the coal mines. I have seen lot of coal mines and the iron ore mines there. One thing is proven fact all over. I have seen that the water level, the groundwater level, will go speedily down wherever there is a mine. It is a proven fact. So there will be so scarcity of the water is the major thing. Then coal itself have some in, uh, ingredients which are very dangerous and harmful. If they seeps into the um, uh, into the land, the land will become infertile and uh, other kinds of uh, diseases, and they may suffer from the um, bronchitis. I would say skin diseases, eye diseases that we are suffering in India. And also the environmental damage when they take up lots of land that is actually uh, originally yes, that is, farming that is land. That's a major part: environmental damage and the climate change and the global warming. That is that is a major concern of the world today. Ramesh, you have actually met the late Berta Casares, is that correct? No, I haven't met her, but but, but I know and know about her. It was very unfortunate that this kind can be happens to environmentalists. It was really very unfortunate. She is a winner, 2015 prize winner. Yeah, I know about her. And you have won a prize in 2014 as well. That is the um, Goldman Prize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, yeah, in 2014. Yeah. That's right. That was That was called the Goldman Environmental Prize, which is... Which is given in um, San Francisco. You must be. Yeah, you must have been very proud of that. Yeah, yeah. It's given in the for the grassroots level who are working in the field for protect the environment and between the communities. And it's also known as the Green Nobel Prize. Yes, yes. And you fought for over ten years on this campaign, haven't you? You were alone? No, no, not myself alone. We have a group uh, uh, that is known as the Jan Chetna. 
that is means the general means the people and the chetna means the awareness our complete campaign and uh, so many people's likely minded people are associated with uh, them voluntarily and they know well so our campaign is uh, to make the people aware it is the people awareness i am not alone i am working a lot of uh, fellows are with me that's good to know um will you be speaking at any more meetings other than the one you already uh, addressed in wollongong i have some interviews and um, the minister's office i am going to friday the director uh, the dre uh, i have submitted a dossier to them and they are going to question me some clarification about the dossier so on friday i am going to them their office minister's office dre director of uh, some kind and uh, then uh, i will go to the beyond coal and gas conference and i will be speaking there i will attend the conference for two days and then i will go back to india mm. thank you so much ms agrawal it's been a pleasure talking to you and hats off you you've done yeah. fantastic work uh, for the environment in india and thank you so much for coming to australia to help us here fight the coal mines thanks thanks <laughs> it's my pleasure and that was ramesh agarwal from chatisgarh in india environmental activist the group that has brought him to australia is lock the gate and we all know them very well the group that fights against a coal mine and um coal stream gas and we have a request from them that they need donations to meet Ms Agarwal's trip to Australia so for those who are interested the website is all the w's lock the gate one word dot nationbuilder dot com forward slash ramesh underscore appeal the address again lock the gate one word dot nationbuilder dot com forward slash ramesh underscore appeal so please donate doesn't matter if small or big it all goes towards helping support win views of people and also convince the governments of australia and ramesh agarwal has been very helpful and as you heard he's going to meet the minister to see if we can convince the ministers to stop the coal mines in in the wollongong area they need up to $10,000 so far they have just raised over 3000 so please donate generously yes and uh, <clears throat> because um ramesh agrawal was shot and has a disability physical i mean um his son had to travel with him so the flight cost twice as much and he could not travel in um, economy because of the awkwardness of the seats of course we all know all about that so please donate to um this um, trip that lock the gate has organized uh, as you heard the um lock the gate website is um we gave before so hopefully they'll be able to meet the target okay on to uncle kevin um but before we do that i've got a couple of announcements one is the uh, it's a it's a conference on cuba 
It's being uh, uh, held at the Melbourne Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne. It's being addressed by Yexenia Calzado. I hope I said that correctly, and pardon me if I haven't. She's a representative of the Cuban Institute of Friendship with the People. And it's about the Cuban people who are now considering the relationship with the U.S. and the blockade, of course, which hasn't yet been lifted. So if you're interested, it's at 7 p.m. on the 21st of April at the Melbourne Unitarian Church. And, of course, we have um, two other events very quickly. There's a May Day um, event at the Multicultural Hub on the 30th of um, May, which is a Tuesday. Speakers would be – no, the event is – it's 30 years since the nurses' strike in 1986. And speakers are Irene Bolger, who was the secretary at that time, and yours truly, me, myself, was organizer at that time as well. And Gwyneth Evans, who was the health and safety officer at that time. It is at 6.30, the 3rd of May. It's a Tuesday, multicultural hub, which is opposite the big markets in the city. It's in the Purple Room. And entry is $5.00. Entry and three concession is being presented by Green Left Weekly. Now, let's move on to Uncle Kevin. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Listener, when big end of town law firm Free Kills the Workers Partner. No, no, correction. Former partner, now totally independent Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaela Kosh the Workers, exposed her newfound independence by backing a, wait for it, wait for it, a workers' struggle. Michaela! Indeed, encouraging, almost organising workers to take to the streets. Therefore, it must be a protected action. As totally independent Minister for Coshing the Workers, let me assure you the government backs 100% your campaign for lower wages and even worse conditions. I urge you to bring your rigs, bring your trucks to Canberra and we will show the evil unions they have no right to impose higher wages on workers and more costly, costly, costly conditions like safety, costly, costly, unnecessary safety which would cripple your poor caring employers. Michaela said higher wages and costly, costly conditions would lead to family breakdowns, suicides, bankruptcies, were an attack on the families, on mum and dad investors. Well, you name the evil, the social disaster and higher wages would guarantee it. And to think there are people who reckon this government doesn't care about workers, doesn't support them. A small correction, Michaela pulled us up. Are these people upon whom these crippling higher wages and conditions were imposed by the evil union are not workers. They are independent contractors, independent like me. Uh, but most of them make stuff all, Michaela, lots less than employees, workers and workers in the industry. And they have every right to fight for even less stuff all. The Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal, which made this irresponsible nation-threatening decision, must be wiped out, Michaela and the team declared. It's the road safety and the remuneration bits we object to, uh, Michaela fingered the problem. 
but isn't safety a big problem? What about the drivers and other road users killed and injured in huge numbers by this industry? Safety has nothing to do with safety and even less to do with wages and conditions. The current safety laws strike a necessary and sensible balance between the interests of the caring employers and the interests of the evil union and workers. And the workers are, are contractors you're organising. I said higher wages would lead to suicides. Do you want to kill all these wonderful mum and dad troubler wazzies? Speaking of wonderful troubler wazzies, this hullabaloo over poor old Clive Palmer Gina getting his company finances a bit mixed up with his personal finances and his personal political party, of which he does seem to be the only member these days, personal political party's finances. What a load of nonsense. Clive is just doing what he knows is the right thing to do. Parliament, parliamentary politics exist to serve the caring business class, so poor Clive was um, doing no more than ensuring maintenance of the status quo, including the obvious corollary that the government has a responsibility to pay his workers, meet their entitlements. They're entitled to that money, and I expect the government to meet its responsibilities. You can't blame me if someone drained the company of all its funds. Uh, but, but it was you. Are you suggesting I'm a someone? I am not a someone, so you can't blame me. And the company would be solvent if the evil state socialist government had given me the billions I asked for. Why don't you have the guts to put the blame where it belongs? To make matters worse, there's talk that poor Clive should be charged with some sort of criminal offence for just doing what government and business do, which in this case at least the evil state socialist government didn't do. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if Clive wound up in the slammer? Thankfully, the chances of that are very slight, a fraction of a milli, 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 millimetre above nil. Unlike any of those unemployed bludgers in Townsville wondering where the next meal and mortgage payment are coming from, if they took some silly industrial action which would deserve the harshest of punishment. Because again, it is the role of government to protect caring employers from such disrespect. Thankfully, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition reveals time and again he understands that critical nexus between government and the caring business class. We mentioned last week, apropos Malcolm's understanding that all the riffraff's education taxes must be spent on the caring business class's private colleges, that, that, is, um, that is the role of government, that if a Socialist Party government handed more money to public education or, heaven forbid, supported evil unions against some inadvertent exploitation, that would be class welfare bias, abusing the privilege of power. Bad for all of us, but thankfully the Socialist Party knows there's no risk of such partisanship. It too knows the caring business class represents the common good. But what Malcolm, little, little uh, Billy and their teams don't know is that that privilege of power might imbue privilege, but the power bit lies, as is right and proper, for the good of all of us, with the other half of that government-caring business class nexus. Which is why those attacks on poor Clive are so unjust, unfair, as are these continued attacks on the poor banks, unrelentingly attacked for just doing what banks do, rorting and ripping off. 
and despite their commitment to fierce competition, the big four agreed they must in responding to the regulator who feels there may just be the odd problem with their culture. And as we pointed out last week, we see no problem. We just assume their culture is rorting and ripping off. In responding must, quote, point to the centrality of the banking customer as we seek to enhance risk culture. After all, the customer is 100% central to rorting and ripping off. We'll return to the poor banks for a very difficult quiz to end today, listener. But does anyone think for one second that that repository of responsible um, nailing the big issues news channel Nong would pay for a scoop as kids are kidnapped in Beirut and a grandmother bashed by some incompetence not hired by Channel Nong and the Channel Nong team who went there for the kidnap, but according to Channel Nong, didn't bother to film it, just stood there. Well, that's believable. Their presence was obviously purely altruistic and for moral support. Still, when they get the chance to interview their own interviewer about the horrors of the uncivilised Lebanese legal system, we can be sure they'll recoup recoup several times over the thousands they didn't spend for the exclusive coverage. And on justice, and here's another group of workers, Michaela and Malcolm and the team would support, our highly revered, sorry, our forces of law and order, and their serious work safety issues, supported this week by that international fighter for working people, Lord Rupert of Wapping. The, the back-breaking array of equipment they have to carry around, including their ballistic vests so they can shoot people without being injured themselves, their radio, their spare magazine for the ammunition they need for the pistol so they can shoot people, their capsicum spray, their taser, their handcuffs and their baton, all necessary to maintain law and order, to carry out their important normal police duties, shooting people, spraying them to ensure breathing and eye and respiratory related problems for the unlawful, electrifying them, the fun, fun, fun of watching them shake and collapse, a million laughs and then laying into them with the baton, make sure you draw blood, maybe a few little kicks with your sharpened boots before dragging them back to your workplace to frame them for, say, resisting arrest and assaulting you. I'm always fascinated when someone winds up with the sole charge of, you know, like, resisting arrest. Apparently resisting being arrested for resisting arrest. Turn the Lord Rupert of Wapping page and bang, story warning where the safety issue leads. Members of the, quote, elite special operations group, they're the ones who look like military and we thank goodness they're there to protect us every time we see them being paramilitary with their military trained killer equipment, members of have been taking growth hormones, anabolic steroids, that sort of thing, showing even these brave sons of God as they are known, need to build up their bodies to carry all that lethal equipment needed to protect our liberties. Bravely breaking the law to ensure they uphold the law. Uphold the right, as their motto says, which is far more accurate. Now, finally, that very, very difficult quiz I mentioned. Spot the difference. Evil unions and their anti-True Blue Aussie supporters claim that if they do break the law, the law is adequate to deal with them, that there are laws to deal with breaking the law. 
but the government says, no, that's not good enough. We must have a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga Mission and anti-union specific laws and bureaucracies. Good banks and their pro-troop Lawazi supporters like Malcolm and economic guru Scuttle them more less son claim that if they break, as if they break the law, the laws are adequate to deal with them. So adequate they were able to slash funding for the regulator that we most definitely must not have a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal King Commission into the good banks. The last thing we need is specific laws and bureaucracies for the good, good banks. Tough one, listener, but spot the difference. Good morning. Good morning, Uncle Kevin. Um, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR 855 on AM Down. We are going straight to Uncle Humphrey, who is waiting on the phone. Um, morning, Humphrey. Under the banks this morning, too. Good morning, <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm quite well. I'm quite well. In fact, if I just divert for a little minute from our subject, in fact, I was cheered up a bit when I went to the post office and looked to buy some stamps and... There's a no conscription stamp for the centenary of the defeat of the conscription referendum. Wonderful. So anyone who's still using um, snail mail <laughs> should race along. They're probably only on the philatelic shelf, you know, whether you get them over the counter. But there they are. So I bought up a stock um, and perhaps the, the anti-war feeling about so much um, and Zachary has pressured them into putting out a no conscription stamp. Finally. <laughs> so, finally. Well, it's coming up for October. So, anyway. Great stuff. This morning... You've got a lot morning, to talk about with the Panama stuff and everything. Go on. Go for well, it. Well, yes. I mean, uh, early in the year, everyone in January, you know, the share price was rocking up and down. The Chinese had, you know, lost control of everything. <laughs> and then it all seemed to settle down again. Yes. Um, and, of course, you know, that very good film... The Big Short came out, which focused people's attention back on the financial markets mm. and said, oh, well, that's what it was all about. It was, you know, something in the, in the, in the, entirely in the financial sector. Uh, so what we've been looking at all year, of course, and last year as well, is to has the hurricane passed us by? Um, will zombie capitalism revive? Yeah, an ongoing uh, and- saga, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's no sign of, you know, I mean, there's certainly no real sign of it. Um, and we keep, we keep our eyes out. And what we've got to do, of course, is to look beyond the financial. Mm. We have to see through the financial. Um, but behind it, of course, we keep stressing that it's ex- excess capacity, that the nature of the capitalist system is it has to grow in order to be itself. And in that, because of um, the competitive nature within the system, it it overproduces, it gets excess capacity as all the corporations are trying to control the same market area so they all get bigger and bigger. And eventually, as we've seen the last, well, more than 10 years now, mm. there's excess capacity in the system. I notice that... Little Malcolm and his struggle against the eunuchs when he was in China yes. actually managed to use the phrase excess capacity, but smart only in the man, steel smart sector. Man, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole notion that it is something that runs through the entire capitalist economy 
hasn't hasn't penetrated yet. In fact, there's a lot of people to whom it it should have penetrated, but it uh, but it actually hasn't. No. <laughs> so it's certainly penetrated um, through three um, CR. Yes, so definitely. We'll keep on keep on driving away at that. But there's a good reason, of course, why why in the capitalist system a crisis of excess capacity will erupt in the financial sector. It's not caused in the financial sector, and that's where a lot of people, I think, you know, kind of go astray. They're trying to understand it, and they see it break out in the share market or in the, you know, the kind of banking financial sector in some way, and they think that that's where the cause is. Now, there are a lot of things wrong there, there's no doubt about that, but it is the excess capacity that then erupts through the financial sector. And there's a, an essential reason for that, I think, in the very nature of the capitalist system itself, how it really operates. And that is that the system depends, and always has depended, on a global credit system. Uh, I mean, if I go to the shop to buy the groceries, you know, I hand over cash and I get them. The rest of the capital system doesn't function like that, and it couldn't. You know, people buy things, the big corporations buy things from each other, and they have accounts, and perhaps they get 30 days credit, three months credit. Uh, I mean, that's one sign of it. But the big sign is that the money for expansions comes through the banking system, that they are lending, and we see it now very much around the world in Australia, where the banks are overexposed to the uh, coal and uh, iron ore sectors. As the demand for those has gone down, as that excess capacity is cut into the demand for those things, <clears throat> what we're now seeing is that the banks are mm-hmm. holding a lot of debt that they might have to um, truly mm-hmm. write off. And this now becomes a different problem for them. You know, I mean, if you've got a bank, say, like you know, the Commonwealth Bank in Australia, and they've lent money to other banks, big banks like themselves, they might say, oh, well, you know, we look at the Westpac accounts and they're fine, but what about Westpac's customers? What about any money they've lent to the corporations? And what about the customers of those corporations? Is everybody as sound all the way down the line as they were or seem to be when we lent each other these trillions of dollars. And that's what happened in October 2008. The panic then was not that the big bank themselves were going broke, but that the customers for those big banks were likely to go broke. And each of the banks said, well, I'm not going to give you any more money because I can't be sure of getting back what I've already given you. I'm not going to give you any more. And at that point... For, I mean, they say about 35 minutes, the whole system was poised in seizing up because the moment the credit system ceases to work, and it has to happen every second of every day, it's somewhere in the capitalist system all the time, every second, money has to go into the system to pay wages, to buy materials, to pay bills, to do all those things. It can't allow that credit system to seize up at all. And that's why, of course, um, the U.S. government plunged in with that billion-dollar rescue package 
for the big banks in America. Mm, that's now, right. Mm. I mean, they weren't just saving the banks, they were saving the global system. That's right, the capitalist system. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, that was what was in danger. People, oh, they're giving money to the banks. Well, yes, they were. But they were doing it because of the way in which the credit system operates throughout there. And that's, so, a, that's a case even with Greece and, and I guess other European countries, mm. isn't it? It's the same yep, yep. scenario everywhere you look. Yep, yeah. I mean, you know, that, you know, that this is, you know, this is, one of the big threats that you know that is hovering around there now, and you know, and I, you know, say now that that if you want a guide as to what is really happening, I mean, it's very hard to know uh, where to look given the you know kind of information we aren't provided with. But the Italian banks are really hanging over the precipice. That's right. And some of them are effectively bankrupt already. Mm. Now, if they start to go down, you know. They've, they've got money lent from other banks and then corporations, and so there could be another crisis out of there. The only danger with that is, of course, that we know about that danger, and therefore people are kind of watching it. Perhaps the real danger comes from somewhere where no one's watching so far that, um, that we don't even know it's there. Hmm. But what we've got to do is to look at the real economy with excess capacity as well as seeing what's going on in areas of the stock market um, because the two things are connected to each other but we've got to remember that what's fundamental to the capitalist system is production that's right. excess capacity mm. that's what's happening there Mervyn King who was governor of the Bank of England you know, so supposed to know something that's going on in the world <laughs> <You will hope. laughs> he just published a book because uh, he was there during the the 2008 onwards period, he's talking about a savings glut. Now, I don't suppose he knows that when he talks about a savings glut, he's actually talking about Marx's notion of excess capacity. Yes. He's just sort of stepped one back from it and said, well, people have got all these savings, or banks and institutions have got all these savings, and there's nowhere to put them. Hmm. Well, of course, there's nowhere to put them because there's excess, excess capacity. Hmm. And there is very few places now to put your money into productive activity that isn't already oversupplied. Yes. So that when he talks about excess capacity, or when, he, when he talks about a savings glut, he's really avoiding the question of excess capacity. But that, in a sense, is what he's doing when he mistakes the effect of the system for the problem for being the cause of the problem. Um, um, John Maynard Keynes made the same mistake. He talked about underconsumption rather than overproduction. Uh, but it's the overproduction that is, the, in a sense, the, the, the source of the underconsumption rather than the other way around. Now, if in Australia, there's a lot of talk about the property bubbles. And indeed, there does seem to be that that is beginning to really uh, concern the Reserve Bank yesterday, for example. But there are, you know, there are links, I think, between the property bubble and what King calls the savings glut, that people have nowhere else to put their money. They got burnt in the stock market. They think, I'm not going to put it there. And they have this delusion that bricks and mortar are in some way solid. You know, they're kind of physically solid, but are they financially solid? That's right. Well... 
They aren't quite the same thing, <laughs> no. are they? No, no. Uh, and the other thing about it, of course, is that if you put money into housing, when you do it, the actual building of a house does add value because you exploit the construction workers. Of course. So surplus value comes out of their labour and capital expands that bit. But once they're up, you can't make more money out of the house. All you can do is if you rent it to somebody, you just move around money that's been made somewhere else in the system. Mm. So it's not like building a factory. So in a sense, putting all the money into housing stock, while it may be a, uh, you know, fueling a big and dangerous property bubble, it isn't adding to the excess capacity in the system. Uh, so it is quite different in those kinds of ways. Um, now, we began by saying something about the stock market and how everybody got concerned about it, you know, in uh, January when it was flying up and down and, um, you know, now it seems to have calmed down a bit or, you know, it's only one sector or one company or something that, you know, seems to be a problem at a time. Yeah, the casino of the rich, I see it as. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it is bizarre, isn't it? Yes. That in the last 20 years or so, Every ABC News bulletin ends with the weather and the stock market report. That's right, the economy, stock market, where are the people and all this? Not well, to be seen anyway. I mean, it's become, you know, what they've done is to naturalise the share market. Yeah. They, they've treated it as if it's a part of the natural world. Hmm. You, know, there's, you know, this thing called the market that gets excited and it goes up a bit and then it kind of calms down or something. So <laughs> people, you know, I mean, it is a problem. That, that Bizarre, very bizarre. Well, all of us, of course, are in a way infected by this because no matter how much we can stand outside it, because it's everywhere around it, you just, you just take it for granted that, oh, yes, there will now be a share market report, that people think that the share market is much more important than it, than it actually is, mm. or that it tells them what they really expected to tell them about <laughs> and what, some, sorry, and something what the useful. Of the economy is. That's right, and something useful that you can understand. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you know, there are occasions, you know, in which the stock of a company does actually tell you something real about it, and, you know, um, iron and steel are a pretty good example of that at the, mm. at the current situation. There is a connection between the share market and the real economy. Volkswagen, as we mentioned last year, is another example. Yeah. You know, that, that after their scandal and disaster, the price slumped, which is hardly surprising. So there is a bit of, bit of sort of reality um, connect there. But so people might be now thinking, well, isn't there a paradox here in what you're saying? I mean, here we have the stock market booming, and you're trying to tell us that the global economy is going down the tubes. Well, what I want to suggest is that the state of the stock market being where it is is actually added proof to what we're warning about in the state of global capitalism. That the reasons why the stock market is up in many places is because governments are compounding the problems in, in those economies. I mean, Japan, for example, the government there has forced the money out of people's bank savings account into keeping the stock market going. And after a couple of years of this, what have they ended up with? Nothing mm. except negative interest rates. Yeah. Even 
even more attempts to pump money into keeping the stock market somewhere around 17,000. But in an attempt to do this, they've compounded their debt-to-GDP ratios. They're just making it harder for themselves ever to get out of it. Um, we, you know, we saw similar things happening in the US for years with um, uh, quantitative easing. Uh, they were running up huge government debts there, or well, debts in the public, you know, in the, in the government sector. Um, we've now seen China come back to life. How? By pumping even more money into a banking and financial system, which is a disaster. That's right. Already, you know, and the, you know, you've got people appearing, you know, as, as pundits saying, oh, everything is great in China, you know, it's kind of, you know, booming again. Mm. Um, you think, yeah, the only reason it's booming is that you have forced all this government money into the system, right. that you've got more bad banks, um, i.e., Banks that carry loads of debt um, that you know that sometime somehow or other the system's going to have to account for, so that when we look at this and I mean there are a couple of the reasons why the stock market's booming on Wall Street, however, there's a more complicated reason. One of the things that happens in any economic crisis is that big corporations buy up either each other or small corporations. With one of the things that happens, I mean, you just get an increasing monopolisation uh, out of every financial crisis. Uh, we've seen it around the world. There are, you know, there are now fewer big banks in the world than there were uh, eight years ago. Oh, mm, they haven't they? Yeah. So what this has meant is that in the US, the big corporations' oligopolistic power has meant they've been able to keep their prices up mm. because there's less competition between them. That's right. Uh, and so that what we now see is that they are running at record levels of uh, profits. This is the biggest corporations there. Mm. It's monopoly capitalism, do, isn't it, in that sense? Yeah. Well, yes. And, but in order to do this, of course, you know, because they're selling things, they do have to keep up, and they have kept up, the old level of uh, investment. Mm. So they are still putting money into their productive system. However, they're making so much money that every year they have $800 billion more than they can invest. Now, in five years, that's $4 trillion with nowhere to go. Mm. Except, of course, on Wall Street. Yes. So it's no surprise that here we have this uh, oligopolistic situation with price, gou price gouging in the US, pushing their profits up so they can keep up their levels of investment but still have, over five years, $4 trillion to put in the money markets. Yeah. Now, it's not only Wall Street. It's foreign exchange. Um, it's um, government bonds. All the areas, all those complicated derivatives and things. So there's this huge amount of money to pour into the money market. So, no surprise. No more capacity. That, you know, that you've got all this money sloshing down the gutters of Wall Street. Yes. Uh, so, when we look at the, um, you know, the kind of boom on the stock market there, we've got to remind ourselves 
that it's, it's happening because of a compounding excess capacity question. Um, that it isn't a sign that everything is going gangbusters. Um, it's, well, it's almost the opposite. Now, of course, once you put your money into the stock market, people have to be reminded, although they don't want to hear about it there, that you can't make money out of money. Mm. All that happens is that the money that corporations have extracted from the surplus value of working people is sloshed around from one of them to the other. That's right. It's There's transfer. no new value created on the stock market. I mean, mm. they talk about value adding. You know, I mean, this wonderful phrase. They have no idea what it means. <laughs> they just, you know, for them, the price has gone up. But there's a big difference between the price of a stock and the value that is added to the real economy. So they're not adding anything to it, but the money sloshes around there. Uh, the pool of money doesn't swell in any any real sense at all. So these are the kinds of of issues that when we're confronted by these calls for a, a royal commission into banking, yeah. um, I mean, I'm not opposed to a royal commission into banking because, you know, it's, you know, It'll make some of them uncomfortable for a bit, and that's a kind of minor pleasure. But they don't do anything, even if they have royal commission anyway. So well, I mean, waste of money. Know, I mean, the rule with the royal commissions, as we know, is you write, as the king says in Alice, oh, sentence first, <laughs> verdict later. Yes. You know, so you write the report, and you call that the terms of reference. Yes. So you 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 know you write them in such a way that you're only going to look at very narrow uh, technical small th- things. Yeah, you know. I mean, there was a royal commission. I mean, I don't know whether people have been talking about this, but there was a there was a royal commission into banking um, 80 years ago, <laughs> um, and um, J.B. Chifley was a member of it. And what he took away from it was that you could not have a financial system motivated by profit. Now, what <laughs> does that lead to? <laughs> yes. Bank nationalisation. So I don't Sounds think, good to me. <laughs> I don't think the ALP wants to be reminded of the Royal Commission from 80 years ago. No. <laughs> because in this call, somebody might say to them, well, are you going to follow the light on the hill and come back to bank nationalisation? Yep. This is a party, remember, mm. that sold out the People's Bank. That's right. You know, I mean, you know that, that instead of having a you know, an instrument within the banking sector that you could use, the Commonwealth Bank has become one of the worst offenders. Absolutely, and we're going to wrap up soon, Humphrey. Okay, so it's no surprise that David Murray, who was head of the um, of the Commonwealth Bank while all this was going on, doesn't want a royal commission. <laughs> it is useless. No, it's really no useless. No surprise at all. Yeah. Anyway. Good to talk to you. Next weekend here, we're joining the Anzac March again with the Frontier Wars contingent. Good. Uh, you know, so that we've been doing for the last four years, following people from the uh, Aboriginal Embassy mm-hmm. um, up behind the main parade. And I have to say, um, we get a very warm reception from the crowd. Lovely. Great. Okay. Have a good time. Talk Thank you, Humphrey. Bye. Bye bye. And that brings us to the end of the program. And, of course, we had Ian Angus, the eco-socialist from Canada, and Ramesh Agarwal from Tereska in uh, India, uh, both talking on the climate change issue and the environment and the coal mines. 
And just to remind our listeners, we do podcast this program, and I always keep forgetting to remind people, but there you go. Podcasts, go to um, 3cr.org.au, and you will, if you follow the prompts, will take you to the podcast. And we also have a website, and that is solidaritybreakfast.org.au, and I put up all Humphrey's writings up there, and all the things he's talked about will be on there. I try and keep up with it, but it's usually up to date. And we have to say goodbye. And, of course, Asia Pacific Current is waiting to follow us. And thank you for listening. It's been a, a great morning. I hope you enjoy a good day and enjoy all the political activity that's happening around uh, Melbourne, really. Okay, I'm off to the conference on Malaysia, and I shall, she, uh, I shall talk to you in a fortnight. Bye.